0: Christ in Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the conversation today. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. We're leaning toward the finish line for our Ready, Set, Think series. Um, We've been exploring the way that our brains are kind of predisposed to process life and 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 how that influences how we operate in the world. Um, Each of these episodes in the series is coming at it from a slightly different vantage point. Um, We've looked at our reactions to hot-button issues. We've looked at our aversion to mystery and paradox. We've looked at our predisposition toward being more optimistic versus pessimistic, and I've loved all these conversations. After every one, I think, ooh, that's my favorite one. And so eventually, I want to hear from all of you listeners which one you've enjoyed the most. But today, I think today's topic is going to uh, rise right up to the top for me, not only because of the topic. But um, also because we have a guest, which is so fun. And podcast guests are my favorite kind of guests because honestly, we get the best of all worlds. We get conversation and all the chatting, but none of the house or the food prep that comes along with house guests. <laughs> Hannah, That's do you right. feel that way?
1: That's right. So you said we were having a guest, and the first thing I thought was, did we clean the bathroom? I because know. you do not want to see the bathroom right now, <laughs> it is
0: terrible. There's a certain amount of frenzy and stress that comes with having house guests. And there are good things that result from it, but the the pre-planning and the pre-preparation for welcoming guests into the home, that that causes a little bit of hustle, doesn't it?
1: It does. And I remember some of my worst memories of childhood were when my mom was like, We're having people over for dinner because I knew the two hours before those people would come would be the worst hours of the week because we would be rushing around trying to get the house clean, trying to prepare the food. And my mom, I love her desperately, but it was like she turned into this completely different person. You know? And and we're all she's a
0: woman just on a mission. Panicked. That's right.
1: And the terrible thing is I do this same thing to my kids now. It's like we're having people over for dinner and this this person emerges that is panicked. And it's like, this house is awful. How can we live this? This is downright terrible. We are such horrible people. And my kids just look at me with these eyes like, oh, who is this woman? Can I have my mother back?
0: Well, I think we all experience that to some degree. I mean, when we're put on the spot and we think, oh, no, what will happen? What's going to happen when people come in and they see that I don't put every single dish away the moment I'm done using it? Or I don't. Oh, my
1: favorite. My favorite is when guests will come over and we've had them over for dinner. And Uh they'll be like, here, I'll help you wash up. And I'm like, "Ah, I don't do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Why? No, no, we don't do that here. (laughs) Yes, there is something about that where you feel very exposed. And so I think that that housekeeping aspect for when you're having guests over, I feel like that's such a good picture for how we we want everything to go well. And we put ourselves through these chaotic motions, just trying to get everything just right to prevent the worst possible scenario the worst case scenario from people seeing how we live day to day and that it's not um, like a magazine although we would love to have it like that wouldn't we
1: well yeah and I find that I make really silly decisions sometimes when we're rushing around to get people in oh yeah like it's two hours and like I'm going in my kid's room and I'm just like boxing up and bagging up all of their toys and not even sorting them, you know, all, all the clothes go down the laundry chute, regardless of whether they're dirty right. or clean. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Everything just like, goes I've got to get this stuff away, <laughs> you know, and there's just this kind of, uh, you know, this panic or anxiety oh, yeah. get it clean, but yep. it may or may not be the smartest way to go about it.
0: <laughs> well, this is... One of the many reasons why we love to have guests is because there isn't some of that uh, that external racing around. We don't have to do that. But we are so glad that we get to have a guest today because we're going to be talking about how it is that these stressful scenarios and really the stress of life, how it can cause us to become people we don't really want. care to to be (laughs) regularly, or it causes us to make decisions that we wouldn't normally make, like what you mentioned, Hannah. So we are so thrilled today to have Laura Turner with us. She is a writer based in San Francisco. She lives there with her husband and her son. She is a freelance journalist. She covers topics in religion and politics for outlets like BuzzFeed and The Atlantic and Politico and as if that's not enough, she is also writing a book about the cultural history of anxiety. So we are so thrilled, Laura, that you are here with us to help sort all of this out. So welcome to Persuasion. Thanks so much for having me. We are so happy to have you as our resident expert here. We would (laughs) love to hear a little bit about your background in this area and this topic. And would you be willing to share a little bit about how this became an area of interest for you?
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I would guess, um, my story is probably not dissimilar to a lot of people who are listening in that I became interested in learning about anxiety because I have anxiety, um, a significant amount of it. And for pretty much my whole life, my first memories are really, um, some of my most anxious memories as a kid growing up and, um, navigating being away from my parents and that separation anxiety and then getting older and realizing I was really afraid of change and what was to come. Um, and really carrying that with me as an adult, in many ways, there wasn't, uh, a route that I could sort of pinpoint. Um, there wasn't a specific trauma that I went through that caused the anxiety. I had a really good loving family and a good upbringing Um, but I was also, a kind of high performer kid needed to do well in school, um, had really high standards for myself, was critical of myself whenever I didn't meet them. And, um, you know, at 33, I'm still doing a lot of the same stuff, even though I think I've learned a lot along the way. So my interest comes very much, uh, from my own personal story, as well as um, wanting to have the context for sort of what anxiety is and how it works.
0: Well, Laura, this is exactly why we would we wanted to have you here to talk this through, because anxiety is something that we hear so much about. Um, it's, it's such a common topic. We hear it in the news, and people are talking about it in their own lives. But we want to make sure that we're starting off this conversation with good definitions and good understanding. Could you explain a little bit the difference between clinical anxiety and maybe the common everyday stress or anxiety that everyone feels? Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. I think it's so good and so important to really differentiate um, between these kind of two things. And then at the same time, I also want to say that Clinical anxiety and everyday anxiety are on a larger spectrum. So while I think that not everyone has clinical anxiety, everyone who is alive past a certain point can identify with the feeling of being anxious about something or being worried about something. Um, That's just sort of part of the human condition. Um, To be alive is to worry about things, to feel afraid. and. I think generally, anxiety or fear is not disordered when it's in proportion to the threat at hand. So if I'm feeling really, really anxious going into work, my mind is racing, my heart is pounding, my stomach's tight, um, because anxiety is very, very physical, um, as much as as we like to think of it as sort of a mental um, illness or disorder, it's, it's just as much physical and chemical um, which is what our minds are as anything. So that's an important sort of groundwork to lay. Um, But if I go into work with all those symptoms, I'm feeling really anxious and it's the day of my performance review. And I know that that day I'm going to find out if I get a raise or if I get fired. Um, That that's super rational, you know, that is a reasonable response to a threatened outcome where a lot hangs in the balance: my ability to pay my rent, my ability to put food on the table, uh, my ability to care for my family, um, my future in this job. So I'm I'm afraid, but I have reason to be afraid. Um, if I go into work with that same feeling on your average Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, you know, every day I go into work and feeling that way, that is disordered anxiety, um, because on those days, for the most part. Um, I don't have big things to fear. I mean, I might, there might be a difficult work situation that stretches out for a long time. So that's, I'm not talking about that, but in a situation where things are relatively straightforward, um, if I am constantly fearful, afraid, and worried, both in my mind, in terms of my thoughts and feeling that in my body, then I, I would probably be dealing with some kind of anxiety disorder. And then I think, as probably a lot of you already know, um, anxiety is also, you know, when I talk about that spectrum, um, or in this case, it's probably a better metaphor to use is it can be an umbrella under which fall a number of different clinical disorders, they would call them. So like obsessive compulsive disorder has to do with anxiety. Um, people will go through compulsions or have obsessive thoughts because they think, that will prepare me for the bad thing coming in the future or ward it off from happening. Um, post-traumatic stress disorder falls under the anxiety umbrella. It's a response, yes, to something that happened in the past, but it makes us very afraid that our future will also be very, very dark and difficult. So that would fall under um, anxiety disorder. Panic disorder, where a person has frequent and uh, unremitting panic attacks. Um, that's under the anxiety umbrella, as is generalized anxiety disorder, which is sort of that everyday chronic worry. And there's there's more in that umbrella category. But I think it's really important to recognize that anxiety isn't only manifest in, you know, sort of a fearful uh, thoughts about the future. It's manifest in many, many other refracted ways based on our past experiences, based on our genetics, based on our predispositions, based on our, our brains wiring. Um, and, you know, probably some other reasons we don't, we don't even know of yet. So, so that's that.
1: I, I really appreciate you making those distinctions and mm-hmm. c- kind of bringing out the different aspects of it, because in my own um, learning and, and not, you know, kind of coming into awareness of how anxiety operates for both myself and other people, I remember a time when I only understood anxiety as kind of paralysis, Mm, that you had become too overwhelmed by the world. And, you know, it's kind of the stereotype of you can't leave your house or you can't leave um, safe spaces. And and I also did not realize that it can sometimes manifest itself in um, kind of a high. For busyness, yeah. like a need mm-hmm. to always be working and active, so that you could control all the possible outcomes to keep yourself safe, totally. and that was a huge um, kind of unlocking of things. Sometimes, even in my own life of recognizing that kind of busyness, mm-hmm. not as productivity, yeah, <laughs> but as an attempt to regain some level of control over my environment. Um, and even my own work or thoughts. Yeah,
2: I think that's such a good point, Hannah. I remember listening actually to another podcast recently, a woman who uh, studies fear was the guest, and she was talking about how stress is really just fear, but it's a lot more socially acceptable to say, I'm stressed than it is to say, I'm afraid. But really what's at the bottom of a lot of our busyness is fear. And that's where a lot of therapy has taught me um, that, you know, to live with anxiety, uh, to be able to, as you guys are talking about, make decisions, even when you're in an anxious state, it's really important to recognize that we can accept our anxiety and we can slow down and, and be with it as part of us um, without having to argue it or match it word for word. And that anxiety really is a self-protective mechanism gone wrong. So in a lot of ways, it's trying to do something good for you. And again, in therapy, one of the things I've had a couple different therapists talk about is this idea of sort of welcoming your anxiety in like a very well-meaning friend who also just doesn't know what to say or do. I think we all sometimes <laughs> have those people in our lives and um, it's not always easy to extend compassion or welcome to them, but I think we can try to do that with ourselves and know that God has compassion on us just as he sees us and is patient and has perspective and doesn't need us to get everything perfect right away, which I think is an area where, um, you know, of perfectionism and busyness where women in particular can fall into anxiety traps. Um, But anxiety wants to protect us. It wants to keep us from the places we are afraid of. And there are a lot of reasons that it's actually really good for that. Like in my work when I am writing something, um, I'm checking my email to see what my editor has said. I'm responding to them. I am aware that there is more for me to do. I'm not sort of laying back and thinking like, well, if I get around to it, you know, um, it doesn't really matter. I'm I'm on top of things. And anxious people usually get stuff done. Um (laughs) which is, you know, another reason why we can look like very productive members of society, even when, Hannah, as you say, we are actually just keeping busy. To keep from confronting our deep fear and emptiness, um, and that's, I,
0: yeah, Laura, I love how you are almost destigmatizing this because so often within, I think, the Christian subculture, mm-hmm. it's the assumption that if you are are stressed, then this is saying something very dire about your spiritual state. Yeah. And I loved how you made it common that it's like, yes, if you have something going on, let's say you mentioned going to work, and there's going to be a decision made that's going to affect you personally, your job, your livelihood. Yes, of course, you will be stressed to make it seem like, yes, this is what our body does. Mm-hmm. And uh, although we don't want that to then become debilitating, there's a reason why that is happening, and that makes it seem—I uh, don't know—almost like you're not as alone in it. Yes. That this is our common human response, and and that that approach to it that makes me feel uh, almost like I can tackle it a little bit better yeah. or understand it a little bit better and not feel like I need to ignore it or downplay it or refuse to acknowledge that it even exists. Yes.
2: Yeah. I'm heartened to hear that because I really think that part of what helps in talking about anxiety it makes us feel less alone. And I think that whatever we believe about the way that um, Satan and evil work in our world is that they work to make us feel alone. Um I mean, I think that you see this with Jesus in the desert. You see a lot of this sense of Satan um, talking to Jesus like he's the only person in the world. And, um, you know, there are like theological components to that that have to do with us not being God and everything. But I think that that's the way that evil shame and the evil person of Satan can work is getting us to believe that we are alone in the ways that we fear and Getting us to not talk about that. Um, and I think that it's really important to talk about it and then to say, of course, this happens because I'm not a perfect person. And that's a big part of what I believe about the way that the world works. Um, and I am specifically imperfect in these ways. And at the same time, I don't want my anxiety. And I think something that I heard a lot in the church growing up, and I'll, I'll Um, you know, I would guess that people who have struggled with anxiety and grew up in churches might have felt this way is that when, when I was young and I would share that I was worried, um, with people in the church, I would often get from a small group leader or a friend, a really, really well-meaning, but ultimately harmful, uh, well, you can pray about this more. And once you start to pray, you'll feel God's presence. Or if you have a little more faith, if you trust God more deeply, um, you'll be fine. Everything will turn out. Okay. And I, I, again, like these people mean well, but they're saying one of the most wrong and ultimately harmful things that can be said. And I think it's really important to point out that there are verses where, I mean, so many places we read in the Bible, do not be afraid or Jesus telling us, do not worry about tomorrow. Um, be anxious about nothing. You know, I get these verses kind of given to me as though they were on par with the 10 commandments. And I needed to just cut worry out of my life. Like I would cut lust or envy or greed. But the thing is, no one, no one really wants to worry. Like lust and envy and greed, those feel good. Those feed the the worst parts of ourselves. And yeah, like there are some people who get attached to worry or codependent in a relationship with it. But for the most part, we don't want this. This is a battle that we are fighting with God on our side. This isn't something that we are trying hmm. to sort of cut out and excise. And I think it's really important mm. to make that distinction because otherwise we end up believing that there's something about us that is fundamentally flawed, which, it, which is true. Absolutely. If you're a Christian, that's part of what you believe, but being worried about the future, um, is a way that we cope with being alive in the world. And we hand that over to God, mm. but we don't get to sort of just cut it out of our lives. um, in the same way that we would want to do with something that is a sin. Does that make sense?
0: Mm -hmm. It does. I love that
1: because Mm -hmm. I love how you're um, describing this as uh, almost a greatest strength, greatest weakness um, aspect of our lives. And that really resonates um, with with my own experience Mm -hmm. um, of what I like to call critical thinking, but just ends up being – um, seeing the worst possible <laughs> totally. outcome of everything. Yeah. <laughs> and my husband's like, he's a pastor and we'll work through stuff he's going through in the church and we'll talk about all the dynamics of the scenario and the people involved. And I will come up with... Every possible thing that could go wrong Mm -hmm. based on every action of everybody involved. And he looks at me, he says, you always read this in the worst possible way. And I'm like, aren't you glad? Because (laughs) you'll just walk right into it and never see it coming. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yes, this is, it's become kind of a, a joke, but we have learned that my contribution to that is to consider all the potential that could happen and go wrong. And, and, you know, half the time it does. And we also, (laughs) I'm also learning to kind of uh, take my worry and my sense of what could go wrong with a dose of salt, right? So it's also to say, this isn't necessarily going to happen. It could, but it's not guaranteed. And, you know, just kind of lay back a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think that that's really good. And I think it's really important to remember, again, anxiety is trying to help us, trying to protect us. It's just doing it in the wrong way. Um, one of the things that a therapist of mine said a while ago was, we we don't need to protect ourselves. We can trust that God is already protecting us. And in the right, wrong context, that would have been really unhelpful. But I think for me, in the context of our relationship, it was just a reminder that I think the antidotes to anxiety are trust and hope. Um, and so, building hope being a discipline and being something that I and maybe you, Hannah, and others have to work at because our minds are more naturally critical. Um, and we can go to places that are um, negative and difficult. And we are so prepared when that stuff happens. Like, we know. We know what to do. Anxious people are great in a crisis. You want them there when you're in the mm. hospital. You want them there to bring you meals. We are the right? best. That's right. We are the best <laughs> in a crisis. And 100%. I say this to my husband
1: all the time. The minute something goes mm-hmm. wrong, I know exactly what yeah, to do.
0: You are prepared. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. All of this is so. Interesting in terms of the responses, almost like things are happening, and then um, that anxiety is helping you to respond. In all the series, that's what we've been talking through: is that there are these things going on beneath the surface that are driving us one way or the other, and they're like these unseen forces. We don't know they're there, but we see the outcome of them, and we may be aware of the anxiety or the stress of the day. Um, but there are so many things that I'm seeing that even they're not necessarily crisis based, but it's just the everyday stuff. Um, And one of them that was in a BuzzFeed article um, titled How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Mm -hmm. This article was talking through how we are just operating on this constant stress. Like it's just that chronic always there. And it is connected to a feeling like we always have to be doing things. Mm -hmm. We always need to be striving. You need to have a side hustle. And as I was reading this article, one of the things that that hit me is that we have this great stress around time scarcity, Mm -hmm. we feel like there's not enough time, and how that is also creating situations where we are responding negatively. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah,
2: absolutely. And what you see? I think that um, that article was fantastic. And I think um, if some of you listeners haven't read it. I would encourage you to. I think there is a real sense particularly with millennials and Anne Helen Peterson in the article makes this connection. For a lot of us who graduated college right around the time of the financial crisis, we um you know, there are lots of studies that kind of show we are the first generation in quite a while whose lives have not been pretty quickly Um, better than that of our parents when you measure them in economic terms, in terms of real estate, stuff like that. So we uh, are connected to the larger sort of cultural difficulties that we have gone through is this sense that um, things are scarce, that there is not a lot of work out there. There's not enough time to do what we need to do. Um, There are too many people and not enough resources, which is sort of the definition of scarcity. And so we need to fight and claw our way into proving that we are worthwhile and um, the way that we do that is by producing. The way that we do that is by identifying with what Walter Brugman call a consumer capitalist society and um, creating a lot and making money and taking care of ourselves because no one wants to be the person who's stuck at home in their parents' basement when they're 35. So out of that fear comes You know, sometimes some creativity, sometimes some good stuff, but mostly a really diminished sense of self, um, a lack of understanding of who God is and can be to us, and a sense that time is always running out. And there's a phrase that um, Dallas Willard used, who was a good friend of um, my family's, and he was a person who I think um, was just a spectacular thinker. And that caused him to be like Christ in many ways. And he talked about the need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. Um, And I think that the older I get and the more I think about that, the more wise and radical that seems because hurry is just sort of the default that we all find ourselves in. And this is true of millennials, certainly, but also many other generations and people. Um, And I think I thought of it as first, it's like, oh, yeah, if I need to be somewhere in you know, twenty minutes and it takes me 15 minutes to get there. Like instead of leaving my house and I have 10 minutes left, if I leave with 20 minutes, then I'll feel much more relaxed and much more calm. Um so yeah, it remain hurry. That's a great like g- good thing and practically, okay, I can do that. And then last the last couple of years when I found myself going through a really, really hard season of um trying to get pregnant, I had three miscarriages in nine months, including one that was pretty late along, and it was just a really, it was an awful time of life, and I still live with that and hold it in some ways, although um, I have a really great and fat nine-month-old son who I love, and that is, you know, a huge gift, but still that feeling of those three miscarriages is in me, and at that point, especially at the end of the third one, I would have done anything to have anyone tell me how things were going to play out, Not like I need a guarantee that I'm going to have a baby, although that would have been great. Like, I just need to know I need certainty. And I think that the wisest people I know can release their need for certainty. Um, But the more anxious we are, the more we feel like we need certainty. And life is not a, a game where you get certainty at the end or, or at any place along the way. And I think that's, this is a little bit of a side note, but I think some of the, um, again, particularly for women, if we look at, uh, this sort of like Instagram influencer, like the mom who's got her kids and there was some mom I was looking at the other day on Instagram and she had like her kid and it was this beautifully staged photo shoot. And then there was some line about how, like I had, you know, I was, home alone with you, my baby. And you had a blowout and everything was so, so messy, but I love you still. And you're like reading these words, but then the picture is like a professionally staged photograph. The lighting's great. Like the mom's hair is done. She's got a perfect outfit on. She's got the baby, which is great. Like, that's fine. Let's, can we just call that what it is? Because I think comparison breeds anxiety because then we feel like we have to be like the other person. So she's writing these words that are like vulnerable and reflective of the life of a new parent, but in in the image and what we're seeing, it's perfection. And I don't know how. Like I see that, and my brain doesn't know how to make sense of that cognitive dissonance. So I just think, well, I should be different. I need to be different. I need to be certain. I need to know that people admire me. I need to know that I am special. I need to know that I am secure. And um, we're not going to find that on Instagram. It's hard enough to find that if I'm like reading my Bible and praying regularly. So I think that that's another area where there's a lot of room for growth. For me personally, um, in conversations with people, I think taking the first step to be vulnerable is one of the best ways we can overcome anxiety. There's a lot of Brene Brown stuff out there that's great about that. And I think to lead in conversation for me and say, I struggle with anxiety. I have had these miscarriages. It has been very hard. I am not over it. What do I do that like those are specific and concrete ways that I fight against the stronghold of anxiety in my life.
1: I really appreciate you linking that back to the way we move in social media and online. And a couple things struck me, particularly that she said, you know, With a scarcity mindset, there is the need to prove ourselves and prove that we're valuable and prove that we deserve the resources. So some of the need to present this kind of perfect image is both to prove to ourselves and to prove to other people that worth and value. And it reminded me as well that the people I don't clean my house for Mm. are the people I'm safe with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. people that I know they can come in and see my filthy bathroom and we're still good and their sense of who I am and my value has not been affected in the least for them. And I think that's so fascinating that we use that language of I'm safe with you or you're safe with me. And extending that to people, I think would go a long way to cut through um, all this signaling that we do for each yeah. other. Um, it, it does feel like we are all in this desperate attempt to reach a place of safety and that sense that we're okay. But it does become almost this kind of performance, this cycle of performance. And and I do, I feel that same way as you describe. We're just like, oh, honey, honey, mm-hmm. honey, it's okay. <laughs> You're safe. It's okay. Totally.
2: You can put the
1: bad picture up. It's yeah. okay.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think that's hugely important. And it's important for us all to acknowledge the ways that we are specifically imperfect. And I think, you know, the, the people who can come into your house and see it as a mess and still like, that should be everybody. There should be nobody who can't come in. Like the real vulnerability isn't it's underneath that, but it takes time. And you have to build trust with people, um, to get into that place. And I think, something that's really helped me a lot in the way I think about anxiety, um, or someone rather is this, you know, depressive, uh, Danish philosopher who I'm sure you guys have read and talked about before, but I think a lot about, um, Soren Kierkegaard's work on anxiety. And I think a lot about anxiety as suffering and anxiety as angst or dread, which Kierkegaard wasn't the first person to talk about. I mean, this stuff is in Job, this stuff is in Lamentations, it's all over the Old Testament as well, but Kierkegaard has a book that was called The Concept of Dread or The Concept of Anxiety, depending on kind of how you parse it, and um, one of the things he says in it that is continually so wild to me and amazing and helpful is he suggests that anxiety actually predates and presupposes sin. So I'm gonna to try to explain this well. I'm I'm you know uh, no Danish philosopher, but I am alive and he's not. So so I have that. Um, so I I think that the basic kind of understanding is that Kierkegaard is saying in the Bible, in the beginning, there's Adam, there's Eve, there's a garden, there's God saying, Hey, don't eat from this tree. You can eat from anything else, you can you can have everything that you want, it's all yours, just not this tree. Um, so already in a weird way. Uh, God is giving in this mysterious way, God is giving free will to people who he created. Um, even before the fall, there's a choice to be made. And what Kierkegaard says in his book is that Adam had not, no, no framework for what is good and what is evil. So he wasn't thinking like, if I do this, it is the wrong thing to do and God will be mad at me. Although he did have some kind of sense of responsibility but he, he, he knew that, um, he was free. He knew that he had the ability to make a decision. Um, and that that freedom is really the root of our anxiety. And so without anxiety in a way, we don't have true freedom. Um, again, this isn't like, I'm not saying this is like the most theologically sound thing I've ever heard. It's kind of worth thinking about and tossing around. But to me, it's incredibly helpful, because I need to look for what is good in my anxiety? What is helpful? How does it draw me to God instead of away from God? And I think that there's a way that acknowledging the what Kierkegaard would call the dizziness of freedom, or what we in our day might call the paradox of choice, right? That book that was a huge bestseller that says, like, we have so many choices to make, We are actually paralyzed by all the choices that we have to make. Um, Kierkegaard would say we have the dizziness of experiencing freedom because we can choose to do whatever it is that we want to do, either with God or apart from God. Um, And that really in, in our lives to be anxious is also in some very concrete way to be aware of the existence of the reality of God. And that's really important. So While I want to say, like, yes, it is better to live in peace and freedom than it is to live in fear and dread, like, we also have to recognize that our anxiety is there for a reason. And that maybe what it's doing is beckoning us, like God does, pursuing us to come back to Him and to find our peace and freedom in Him and not look for it anywhere else in the world, but to say, this is the tether, this is the rope that pulls me back to where I belong, and it's going to keep doing that over and over again. And yeah, I can stay out on my rope far away, and I can look in other places for the thing that will anchor me, but really the only place I'm going to find it is when I grab this rope and work very bravely to not get distracted, but let it pull me back into the person and the all-consuming love of God.
0: That is So hopeful and so um, relieving, almost like, again, framing up the purpose and um, the, the beauty side of being connected to God, even in the midst of our weakness. Laura, that was so perfectly said. So I feel like that's the the right note to close out our conversation, we could go on and on. I've so appreciated your expertise and your contribution here. I know our listeners will love it. And we will make sure that we get all the links to where people can read more about your work and your thoughts. We'll get all that in our show notes. But thank you so much for being on Persuasion. We really appreciate your time and your contribution here. Well, that's it for today's episode. We have just one more in the works for you to close out this series, and we want to make sure that you catch all the other conversations. There was Thinking It Through, Thinking Twice with Jen Pollock-Michelle, Good Thinking, Thinking Creatively, and Thinking Together. And after you've processed all of that great conversation, we would love to have you join in as well. Yes, you can come on out and join us on Twitter at...
1: Persuasion CAPC, and you can always join us in the members forum if you are a member of Christ and Pop Culture. If not, you can become a member for just $5 a month and enjoy all the conversations that happen in that forum, but also know that you're supporting um, the articles and the podcast and all the good work that is be do- being done by the folks at Christ and Pop Culture.
0: We want to give a shout out to Jonathan Klassen. He produces Persuasion and all the other shows in our network. You can give them a listen at com or search for Christ and Pop Culture in iTunes. We do appreciate all of you for listening to Persuasion. And we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at Christinpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name.